In this episode of Lessons Learned, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot is continued. 1999, Chapter 16, Spending Eternity in the Same Place. During my first visit with Henrietta's cousin Cootie, as we sat drinking juice, he told me no one ever talked about Henrietta. Not when she was sick, not after she died, and not now. We didn't say words like cancer, he told me, and we don't tell stories on dead folks. At that point, he said, the family had gone too long without talking about Henrietta. It was almost like she'd never existed, except for her children in those cells. It sounds strange, he said, but her cells done live longer than her memory. If I wanted to know about Henrietta, he told me, I'd need to go up the road and talk to her cousin Cliff, who'd grown up with her like a brother. When I pulled into Cliff's driveway, He figured I was a Jehovah's Witness or an insurance sales rep, since the only white people who ever visited him were usually one or the other. He smiled and waved just the same, saying, how you doing? Cliff was in his 70s and still minding the tobacco barn behind the farmhouse his father had built decades earlier, checking furnaces several times a day to make sure they stayed at 120 degrees. Inside Cliff's house, the electric blue and white walls were darkened with smudges of oil and dirt. He'd block the stairs to the second floor with cardboard and blankets to keep warm air from going up and out through missing windows. And he'd patched holes in ceilings, walls, and windows with newspaper and duct tape. He slept downstairs on a thin, sheetless twin bed across from the refrigerator and wood stove, next to a folding table where he'd piled so many pills he'd forgotten what they were all for. Maybe the prostate cancer, he said. Maybe the pressure. Cliff spent most of his time on the porch, sitting in a plaid rocker so worn down it was mostly just exposed foam and springs, waving at each car that passed. He was about six feet tall, even with several inches of slouch. His bright, light brown skin dry and weathered like an alligator. His eyes sea green at the center and deep blue edges. Decades in the shipyards and tobacco fields had left his hands coarse as burlap. His fingernails yellowed, cracked, and worn to the cuticles. As Cliff talked, he stared at the ground and twisted with arthritic fingers, one over the other, like he was crossing them all for good luck. Then he untwisted them and started again. When he heard I was writing a book about Henrietta, he got up from his recliner, pulled on a jacket, and walked over to my car, yelling, Come on then, I'll show you where she buried. About a half mile down Laxtown Road, Cliff had me park in front of a cinder block and press board house that couldn't have been more than 300 square feet inside. He jerked open a log and barbed wire gate that led to a pasture, motioned for me to walk through. The end of the pasture, hidden in the trees, stood a slave-time log cabin covered in boards with gaps wide enough to see through. Its windows had no glass and were covered by thin pieces of wood and rusted coke signs from the 50s. The house slanted, its corners resting on piles of rocks varying in size that had been holding it above ground for more than 200 years, its base high enough off the ground for a small child to crawl under. That there is an old home house where Henrietta grew up, Cliff yelled, pointing. We walked toward it through the red dirt and dried leaves that cracked under our feet and the air smelling of wild roses, pine, and cows. Henrietta kept it nice, a real home house. Now I can't hardly recognize it. The floors were covered with straw and manure. They'd collapsed in several places under the weight of cows that now roam free on the property. 
Upstairs in the room Henrietta once shared with Day, a few remnants of life lay scattered on the floor. A tattered work boot with metal eyes but no laces. A True Aid soda bottle with a white and red label. A tiny woman's dress shoe with open toes. I wondered if it was Henrietta's. Could be, Cliff said. Sure looked like her shoe. He pointed toward what used to be the back wall, which had fallen years earlier, leaving little more than the frames of two tall windows. This is where Henrietta slept. She used to lie on her stomach and stare out those windows, looking into the woods at the family and the family cemetery, a small quarter-acre clearing where a few strands of barbed wire now surrounded a scattering of tombstones. The same cows that had trampled the home house floor had destroyed several sections of the cemetery fence. They'd left manure and hoof prints on graves, crushed, crushed flower arrangements into piles of stem, ribbon, and styrofoam, and knocked over several tombstones, which now lay flat on the ground next to their bases. When we got outside, Cliff shook his head and picked up fragments of a broken sign. One piece said, we love, and the other said, mom. Some of the family tombstones were homemade from concrete. A few were store-bought marble. Them's the folks with some money, Cliff said, pointing to a marble one. Many graves were marked with an index card-sized metal plates on sticks with names and dates. The rest were unmarked. Used to be we'd mark them graves with a rock so we could find them, Cliff told me. But the cemetery got cleaned out one time with a bulldozer, so that pretty much cleared those rocks on away. There were so many people buried in Lack Cemetery now, he said they'd run out of room decades ago and started piling graves on top of each other. He pointed at an indentation in the ground with no marker beside it. This was a good friend of mine, he said, then started pointing at the, around the graveyard to other body-sized indentions in the dirt. See that sunken right there? And that sunken right there? And there, them's all unmarked graves. They sink after a time when the dirt settle around the bodies. Occasionally, he'd point out a small, plain rock poking through the earth, saying it was a cousin or an aunt. That there's Henrietta's mother, he said, pointing to a loose, alone tombstone near the cemetery's edge, surrounded by trees and wild roses. It was several feet tall, its front worn rough and brown from age and weather. The inscription said this, Eliza, wife of J.R. Pleasant, July 12th, 1888, October 28th, 1924. Gone, but not forgotten. Until I read those dates, I hadn't done the math. Henrietta was barely four years old when she lost her mother, about the same age when Sonny was same age Sonny was when Henrietta died. Henrietta used to come talk to her mother and took real good care of her grave. Now Henrietta, somewhere in here with her, Cliff said, waving his arms toward the clearing between Eliza's stone and the next tree, a good fifteen feet away. Never did get a marker, so I couldn't tell you exactly where she at, but the immediate family be buried next to each other, so she probably around in here somewhere. He pointed to three body-sized indentions in the clearing and said, any one of those could be Henrietta. We stood in silence as Cliff kicked at the dirt with his toe. I don't know what happened on that deal with themselves from Henrietta, he said eventually, but don't nobody say anything about it around here. I just knowed it was something rare because she'd been dead pretty good while, but her cells, her cells still living. And that's amazing. He kicked at the ground. I heard they did a lot of research and some of her cells have developed a lot of curing other diseases. It's a miracle. That's all I can say. Then suddenly he yelled at the ground as if he was talking directly at Henrietta. 
They named them Gila, and they still live in. He kicked the dirt again. A few minutes later, seemingly out of nowhere, he pointed to the dirt and said, You know white folk and black folks all buried over on top of each other in here? I guess old white granddaddy and his brothers were buried in here too. Really no telling who's in this ground now. Only thing he know for sure, he said, was that there was something beautiful about the idea of slave-owning white laxes being buried under their black kin. They spread an eternity. They spend an eternity in the same place. He told me laughing, they must have worked out their problems by now. Henrietta's great-great-grandmother was a slave named Morning. A white man named John Smith Pleasance inherited Morning and her husband George from his father, one of the first slaveholders in Clover. Pleasant's father came from a family of Quakers, and one of his distant relatives had been the first to fight successfully to free his own slaves through the Virginia courts. But Pleasance hadn't carried on the family's anti-slavery tradition. Morning and George were enslaved on a tobacco plantation in Clover. Their son, Henrietta's paternal great-grandfather, Edmund, took his owner's last name, which was lost, which lost the S to become Pleasant. He was eventually freed from slavery at the age of 40, only to be committed later to an asylum for dementia. But before he was freed, he fathered many children, all of them born into slavery, including a daughter named Henrietta Pleasant, the great-aunt of Henrietta Lacks. On the other side of Henrietta's family, her maternal grandmother, great-grandfather, was a white man named Albert Lax, who'd inherited part of the Lax plantation in 1855, when his father divided his land among his three white sons, Winston, Benjamin, and Albert. Winston Lax was a burly man with a beard that grew to his belly. He drank almost every night in a saloon hidden in the basement beneath the general store. When Winston got drunk and started fighting, the locals knew it was time for the soberest man to ride and get Fanny. There was no records of Fanny's life, but she was most likely a slave born on the Lax property. And like most Lax slaves who stayed on the plantation as sharecroppers, she never left. She often rode beside Winston in his wagon, and when he got drunk, she'd march into the saloon, snatch him off the barstool by his long beard, and drag him home. The other brothers, Albert and Benjamin led more private lives and left little behind left behind little history aside from their wills and land deeds. Most of the black laxes I talked to over the years referred to Benjamin Lax as old white granddaddy, though some still called him Massa Ben, as their parents had. When Albert died on February 26, 1889, slavery had been abolished. But few black people owned land of their own. Albert's will left land to five colored heirs, most of it in 10-acre chunks, and those, one of those was Henrietta and Day's grandfather, Tommy Lax. Albert's will said nothing of his relation to his heirs, but folks in Lactown, Laxtown knew they were children he'd had with his former slave named Maria. After Albert's death, his brother Benjamin sued to take some of the land away from Albert's black heirs, saying that since it was his father's land originally, he had the right to choose whichever plot he wanted. The court agreed and divided the original Lax plantation into two plots of equal value. The lower section on the river went to Benjamin Lax. The upper plot, now known as Laxtown, went to the Black Laxes. Sixteen years after the court case, when Benjamin 
Lax dictated his own will before his death. He gave small plots of land to each of his sisters and then divided the remaining 144 acres in his horses between seven colored heirs of his own, including his, Tom, his nephew, Tommy Lax. There was no record of Benjamin or Albert Lax marrying or having any white children. And as with Albert, there was no record that the black children in Benjamin's wills were his own, but he called them his nigger children. According to Black's Black Lacks oral history, everyone living on the land in Clover was once the Lacks plantation, descended from the two white brothers and their black mistresses who were once slaves. When I arrived in Clover, race was still ever present. Rosalind was the nice colored fellow who ran Rosie's before it shut down. Bobcat was the white man who ran the mini mart. Henrietta went to St. Matthew's, the colored church. One of the first things Cootie said when I met him was, you don't act strange around me because I'm black. You're not from around here. Everyone I talked to swore race relations were never bad in Clover, but they also said Laxtown was only about 12 miles from the local lynch tree and that the Ku Klux Klan held meetings on a school baseball field less than 10 miles from Clover's main, main street well into until well into the 1980s. Standing in the cemetery, Cliff told me the white laxes know their kin all buried in here with ours because they family. They know it, but they'll never admit it. They just say, them black laxes, they ain't kin. When I went to visit Carlton and Ruby Lax, the oldest laxes in Clover, they smiled and chit-chatted as they led me from their front door into a living room filled with pastel blue overstuffed chairs and confederate flags one in each ashtray, several on the coffee table, and the full-sized one on a stand in the corner. Carlton and Ruby were distant cousins before they became husband and wife. They were both related to Robin Lax, the father of Albert Ben Winston Lax, which meant they were also Henrietta and Day's distant cousins. Carlton and Ruby had been married for decades and had more children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren than they could count. All they knew for sure was that there was more than a hundred of them. Carlton was a frail man in his late 80s with skin so pale it almost looked translucent. Tufts of hair like overgrown cotton sprouted from his head, brow, and ears and nostrils as he sat in his easy chair, mumbling about his years working the bank as a tobacco at the working the bank at the tobacco warehouse. I wrote out the checks, he said mostly to himself. I was the tobacco king. Ruby was in her late 80s, too, with a sharp mind that seemed decades younger than her frail body. She talked right over Carlton, telling me about relatives who'd farmed the Lax plantation and their relation to Ben and Albert Lax. When I mentioned that Henrietta came from Laxtown, Ruby straightened in her chair. Well, that was colored, she snapped. I don't know what you're talking about. You're not talking about coloreds, are you? I told her I wanted to learn about both the white and black Laxes. Well, we never did know each other, she said. The white and the blacks didn't mix then. Not like they do now, which I can't say I like because I don't think it's for the best. She paused and shook her head. Shook her head. Mixing them like that during school and church and everything, they ended up white and black get together and marry and all. I just can't see no sense in it. When I asked how she and Carlton were related to the black laxes, they looked at each other from across the coffee table like I'd asked if they were born on Mars. My daddy's 
uncle kept a lot of the colored laxes as slaves, Ruby said. That must be where they got their name from. Evidently, they took it when they left the plantation. That's the only thing I can figure. Later, I asked Henrietta's sister Gladys what she thought of their theory. Though she lived about a mile from Carlton and Ruby Lax most of her 90 years, Gladys said she'd never heard of them. Black and white laxes is kin, Gladys said, but we don't mix. She pointed under the couch where I was sitting. Get Lillian's letter, she said to her son Gary. As far as Gladys knew, all of Henrietta's other siblings were dead, except maybe Lillian the youngest. The last anyone heard from Lillian was a letter she'd sent sometimes in the 80s, which Gladys kept in a shoebox under the couch. In it, Lillian wrote, I heard Daddy died in a fire, and she asked if it were true. It was. He died in 1969, two decades before she had sent that letter. But what Lillian really wanted to know it was who'd been talking to people about her life. She'd won the lottery, she said, and she'd believe someone was trying to kill her because white folks had been coming around asking questions about her life in Clover and her family, especially Henrietta. They knew things that I didn't even know, she, she wrote. I don't think anybody should talk about other people. No one in the family had heard from her since. Lillian converted to Puerto Rican, Gladys said, holding the letter to her chest. I looked at Gary, who sat beside her. Lillian's skin was real light, even lighter than mom's, Gary explained. She married a Puerto Rican somewhere in New York. Since she could pass, she disowned her blackness, converted, converted to Puerto Rican because she didn't want to be black no more.